0: Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm Patrick, the co-founder and CEO of Sano Genetics, and I'm really excited to be here with a guest that I've been hoping to have on the podcast for a very long time, and that's Dr. Matt Might. The reason I'm so excited to have Matt on the podcast is because he has an incredible personal story and has inspired many others to go into research in rare disease. Um, So I'm not going to spoil too much by giving the long intro to Matt, but I just like to say welcome, Matt, and it's great to have you here on the podcast. Well, thanks, it's a pleasure. Great. So I was wondering if you could just start by telling us how you got into rare disease from personal perspective with your son, and subsequent uh, blog post hunting down my son's killer that really sparked probably a lot more than you um, than you imagined when you wrote it. Sure. I,
1: I can sort of recap up to that point. Well, yeah, for, for starters, I'm, I'm not a biologist or anything like that by training. Uh, my training is all in computer science and still have spent most of my academic career doing just computer science. Uh, these days it's medicine, but the, the reason for the shift uh, is in fact my son. So I have a 12 year old son, Bertrand, who started off his life with a four year diagnostic odyssey uh, where we had no idea what was wrong um, he had a movement disorder, he had seizures, he had developmental delay, and he had this curious lack of tears linked to all sorts of problems with his eyes. Um, and we had no clue why that was again, for the first four years of his life. Uh, ultimately that diagnostic odyssey culminated in one of the first, you know, human trials of exome sequencing for these intractable diagnostic odysseys. Uh, and that was, that was done at Duke. Um, to our, you know, uh, delight, they found an answer, um, and to our surprise, they told us that he was, in fact, the first patient they'd ever seen with this brand new disease, uh, which is called ngli one deficiency. So he was missing, essentially, had you know uh, a loss of function in, in both copies of, of his angli one gene, and so um, you know they they believed that they could tie this up to the, the high level phenotype, and uh, yeah, that he was the only one they knew of. Uh, there was no record of this disease anywhere in the literature no other patients known, no prognosis. And at that point they said, so yeah, it's, it's really kind of on you. And I, I really ran with that. Um, so I really knew I had to do two things. Uh, one was I said, we have to find other patients and that they must be out there somewhere. Right. Uh, you could even compute roughly how many there should be based on the frequency of the likely pathogenic alleles there were in, in the population genomics databases at the time. Um and secondly, I said, you know, we've got to do some science uh to figure this thing out and figure out how potentially how to treat it. So um the the blog post came in in that you know I needed to find other patients. And so I wrote a blog post called Hunting Down My Son's Killer uh that was very deliberately designed to do two <laughs> things, you know, right. one of which was to go viral, and you can probably figure that out from the title. Um and there's there's a picture of Liam Neeson holding a gun up at the top to help out with that too. Um, and, the the next thing was, uh, I wanted to rank very highly in Google search results for the kinds of terms that another patient or their parent was likely to type in. So things like lack of tears or why doesn't my child cry? You know, I wanted it to appear for those kinds of search. So that other people with this disease would start to find us. Uh, and that is exactly what happened. Uh, so that brings us to the, the end of the, the diagnostic odyssey and the formation of
0: uh, the community. That's amazing that you actually approached it. I, I, I wouldn't have thought about the foresight of writing it virally, doing the search engine optimization, but it makes, it makes complete sense. Do you think that was your computer science background or, or what, what caused you to think about it in that way?
1: Yeah, I think it was very natural for me to think of it that way as a computer scientist. I mean, I certainly I know how Google works. I know how it thinks. And so, you know, that's exactly what search engine optimization is all about is how do you trick Google into ranking your, your right. post higher? And I've been blogging for a long time at that point. So I knew, I knew some of the basics of that. Um, you know, just from writing my own personal academic blog.
0: How many families got in touch with you as a, as a result of the blog post? I can see from the edit history of the blog post that it, it goes from 2 to 8 to 15. And I think today, something like uh, over 60 families that have yeah, it's, been it's, it's, over, it's definitely over 60. So I, I really need to
1: go up and uh, go, go back and edit that blog post a bit to, to reflect reality. In fact, we'll we be close to 70 at this point. I bet, I bet we are. Um, I haven't checked the, the total count
0: recently, but it's been a lot. That is incredibly rare, though, on on the scale of rare disorders, isn't it? I mean, was that how did that square with your calculations originally? When you look at the population genetics databases, was it clear that there might be hundreds, hundreds, yeah, to I, thousands? I, yeah, I estimate we're in the the mid
1: hundreds, so probably five hundred or so patients out there. Um, so that to me more or less squares with those calculations. It's just to say, yeah, it's, it's very, very rare. Very rare. Um, and, uh, it, to me, it's remarkable that we found that many of them.
0: Why is it so rare? Is it a very small gene? Um, is the, is having one copy also not, um, you know, not doesn't lead to full health or why is it so rare?
1: Uh, it's a good question. I don't know why it's, it's so rare, but actually, you know, since you're asking the question, you know, I, just realized I've never actually checked to see what the metrics for haploinsufficiency were on Nomad, um, and uh, sure enough, it's it it doesn't there doesn't appear to be any adverse impact on health um, at least prior to reproductive age according to you know, the estimates on Nomad. So I don't know why there are, there aren't more out there, um, but the, the certainly the loss of function alleles are rare enough that the you know we we don't get a lot of patients.
0: Right. The um, I just was looking it up. To people who don't know what NOMAD is, it's a database of largely healthy people, and it can be used in the way that... The analogy that's often used is when fighter jets go to war, the ones that come back, you look at where the bullets are and the ones that don't come back, um, they've hit the fuselage or, or whatever. So you can use the ones that come back to figure out the quote-unquote weak points of the plane. And, and there's a similar... Idea in human genetics where you can look at large numbers of quote unquote healthy people, um, and look for genes where you don't see genetic variants in And it looks like, uh, just at a quick uh, glance that NGLI one is not particularly high PLI, meaning there's, uh, there's, it's, it's not an issue, as you said, to have people knocked out for the gene in the population, but having both copies knocked out, as, as you know, is, um, is is uh, not compatible with the healthy life. So it's, right. it's interesting. I mean, what, yeah, I, I guess it, it just goes to show there's 20,000 genes and each one has a story of its own to be figured out, right?
1: Yeah, and so I'm, I'm actually, I, I mean, I could have told you from you know, knowing a lot of the other parents that there doesn't seem to be any issues with the parents. Um, but that, uh, that, it, that does make it, it's kind of a puzzle then why it's so rare if nature seems to be so willing to tolerate you know, losing a copy. Um, but, uh, well, I guess that's,
0: that's genetics. Yeah, exactly. So, so at what point did you decide to shift your career uh, from cybersecurity research, computer science, full on into precision medicine? How did that coincide with the diagnosis and formation of the, um, nonprofit organization as well, which I believe you founded?
1: Yeah, so we built a nonprofit, profit dot oneorg that raises money to do research into drug development for the disorder and to support the patients with the disease. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's funny. I think the conscious choice to change my career happened after it had changed in practice. Um, right. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a gradual evolution. Um, it, you know from you know one step at a time so the first step was while i was still at the university of utah as a professor of computer science i picked up a second appointment in pharmaceutical chemistry and started collaborating with the folks there on drug development for this disease um actually had some success um you know while i was at utah uh, we found a couple different compounds that work for the disorder in a couple different ways and um then ended up on the faculty at the harvard medical school um doing uh initially, you know, stuff more related to the diagnostic part of Bertrand's journey, trying to scale that part of up through the undiagnosed diseases network. Uh, and then moving over to the therapeutic side there as well, uh, doing that, you know, more bioinformatically and you know, trying to use computation to predict, um, treatments for patients. Whereas a lot of the work that was being done while I was at Utah was actually very, you know, there was a lot of bench science involved, a lot of worms and flies and things like that. Um, yeah and then you know, in parallel with uh, Harvard, I ended up getting an invitation to come to the White House um, and I met with President obama ended up uh, ultimately um, joining the White House itself, um, working as a strategist on the precision medicine initiative um, which um, you know, was unveiled shortly after I met with President Obama the first time uh, and that 's this program to Collect a million genomes and medical records on a million Americans, so that we can build what I call the Rosetta Stone of the human genome. So that was a very high level, you know, entry point into precision medicine in terms of you know, building the scientific foundation necessary to make it possible. Whereas the work I was doing at Harvard was more, you know, on the ground uh, with, with with the patients. Um, I also ended up co-founding a company called Paranomics that was doing repurposing drug screens for ion channel driven epilepsies. Um, that company since been acquired. Um, but we did, yeah, you know, we did that very successfully. Um, and so, you know, at the end of this process, you know, after three years, I, I think it's about three years working at the white house and, uh, three years at Harvard at that point, And I had been you know, working on biotechs. So I was on sort of indefinite sabbatical from Utah and I realized, well, I guess my career has shifted, you know, despite right. the fact that I still had an active computer science lab doing research and publications and grants and all that, um, you know, And I just well, I think maybe I should consider going actually full time into medicine because I've been doing it anyway. Um, And then I got a, you know, so the plan at the time was to go to Harvard full time. But then I got a bombshell offer from uh, uh, UAB saying, will you come set up this Precision Medicine Institute? Right. Well, yeah, I, I guess
0: I will. You don't often get the opportunity to set up an institute, do you? I mean, I think it's, uh, no. <laughs> it's unique, uh, probably once or if you're lucky, maybe twice in a lifetime that they'll say, come and and mold the institute in the way that you'd like it to to be to be no, built. It was an exceptionally rare offer um,
1: and, and rare in multiple ways in the sense that no, I'm, I'm not a traditional medical researcher. I, I don't have any formal training in the space. I've acquired a lot by, you know, just, you know, from trying to do this stuff for Bertrand and for others. But um, I think my formal training in biology ends in, with a C in
0: sixth grade. Um, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm not the typical profile of a ins- medical institute director. <laughs> no, not at all. But, but sometimes that's good, right? Because it, it can shake things up. You bring a new perspective.
1: Yeah. And so I think... Um, I, I think UAB has ended up running a, a, a natural experiment in two axes. One is what happens if you put somebody from the patient side in charge of a research institute. Right. And the second is what happens if you just throw a computer scientist in that role too. Uh, right. So both experiments are running in
0: parallel. <laughs> yeah, they managed to get both at once.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting. I mean, it's, and
0: I, I think um, you're yeah, very successful as well. Right, this is maybe a good uh, segue into one of our I, I tweeted out that I was going to have an interview with you and ask people if they had any questions, and one that came from uh, Cecilia Lindgren at the Oxford Big Data Institute uh, was to ask you about what changes in academic research you might you, you know what what thing, what one thing would you change about academic research and how would you go about implementing it and I think given your experience from the government side working on a biotech company and in academia and multiple different uh wearing multiple different hats or in different fields and now getting to start an institute uh, from fresh probably gives you a good perspective on that so what what do you, what do you think needs to be changed and how are you doing that from your current role
1: yeah so i mean the thing that comes to my mind is is i would say as a general policy in all directions open by default uh, and by that i mean no closed data sets, no closed, you know, uh, code, uh, make everything publicly available, you know, from, from the get go. Uh, and so for example, for the primary piece of software that we built at the Institute, this AI tool that we frequently use for drug repurposing called Betty it's open source, it's free. Anybody can download it. Anybody can use it. Um, and that, that's the kind of philosophy I want to foster in all the research here. Um, you know, coming from computer science, I noticed, you know, a cultural difference over in, in biology medicine where, people guard their data and they guard their code. Right? Right. And I think it should be just the opposite.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and, and it does seem to be a little bit of a tension and it's hopefully changing for the better because there's more and more people in genomics and bioscience calling for open data, open code and, and trying to, I think at the end of the day, accelerate, these, accelerate progress, right? Because if it's locked behind closed doors for two years while somebody's waiting for a paper to come out, then it just slows everybody else down. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm by no means the only
1: one calling for this. Uh, yeah. And I'm, I'm glad that there are many out there um, with the same attitude.
0: So how much of your research focuses on specifically ultra rare epilepsies or, or specifically NGLY1 and how much is on precision medicine more generally? Cause I know you also do work in, in cancer and, and common chronic conditions.
1: Yeah. So for the Institute as a whole, we have, you know, three high-level focus areas. Um, and uh, you know, the first is, you know, rare disease sort of writ large. And within that, there is a, uh, an undiagnosed diseases program that's run by Bruce Korff, uh, And then there's um, my lab, which does personalized therapeutics. And th- that actually extends beyond just rare genetic disease, too. Right. Even mean, if that's the, the primary focus or ends up being the primary client of that program, it's probably 80% folks with uh, rare genetic disorders. Um, the next focus area is precision oncology. So, uh, Eddie Yang is my uh, associate director there who heads up that, um, that's largely focused on, you know, genotype guided treatments. Uh, and then, uh, Linda Lindy runs our pharmacogenetics program, you know, where we're really interested in how do you actually integrate pharmacogenetics into a clinical environment right. um, and make it useful. So that's a, in a nutshell, that's, that's a very high level of the kinds of things we're doing here. Um, I personally spend most of my time again on the personalized therapeutics front where, Patients reach out, we will pull their, their data into our program, uh, but program meaning, you know, the, the sort of a consulting program where we try to figure out how to map that data into a, the, the best possible treatment for them. And again, about 80% of those patients are rare, rare genetic disorder patients.
0: Yeah, well, I think what's what's really interesting about that is if you if you think of the broad category of personalized medicine and what the term implies that ultimately someday we'll have a personalized medicine for everyone, then at some point it kind of collides with the state of affairs today in ultra rare disorders. So if there's only a hundred and fifty patients in the world with NGLI one then the way we think about treating that disorder is is possibly the same about how we think about a world where everyone gets the same treatment. So I guess in a way, ultra rare and common, but moving towards personalized medicine are are not as far from one another as we might think.
1: No, they're really not. And I, I think you know ultimately what we're doing is we're defining every disease into a rare disease. You know, so that you know we're we're heavily heavily subtyping down to the specific molecular characteristics of every patient, so that every patient becomes their own you know, instance of that disease. Um, And so at that point, it really, it it almost directly overlaps with treating rare diseases.
0: So I certainly see it that way, yeah. Another question that we had on Twitter, which overlaps with this topic, is from Anna Minglerens, who works uh, on a a number of different rare disorders, but I know she works with Travay Syndrome Patient Organizations and CDKL5. um, And she wanted to get your opinion on the pay, as she calls it, the quote, pay $4 million for a therapy um trajectory that we're headed towards in rare disease so gene therapies and other very expensive but transformative drugs um how how are we going to figure out these breakthrough treatments but do it in an affordable way and and what do you see as the future here is it um you know getting these costs down through technological development or is drug repurposing maybe a a lower cost way to do it or what do you think
1: yeah, in terms of whether or not it's going to be drug repurposing or these really customized therapeutics like gene therapies or antisense oligonucleotides, it's both. They're, they both have an important role to play. Um, and, and and the good news is is the cost is already coming down to a mere two million dollars in some cases. Right, you know? so, <laughs> so we're um, halfway there. <laughs> so yeah, I mean the, these these technological advances you know do make a difference. And you know, even when you know, you know I was working with Paranomics you know initially it was oh my gosh it might even have been, been four hundred thousand dollars to do these repurposing screens at the start. By the time it was over, I think the cost was down to about one hundred and twenty-five thousand uh, dollars over the span of two to three years. I mean, it was not a long time, and the cost came down substantially. Um, and I'm, you know, talking to folks now and think it could go further lower even still. So, you know, those, those technological gains are, are very real uh, when it comes to driving down costs. And so, I'm I'm optimistic long term that that will happen. And you know, when I look at something like antisense oligonucleotides specifically, you know, you look at, you know, the cost of just Actually, making the drug, like the actual fabrication costs, and it's in some cases around five thousand dollars for the lifetime of the patient. You right, a lifetime supply of drug. I mean, that's amazing. Um, so that, that to me, that says, well, that's where it's headed. You know, five thousand dollars plus whatever it takes to design a drug that we believe is safe and effective. So it's, it's the design cost uh, that that you know is, is really blocking us and. Uh, I think everything points in the direction of those costs falling. Right. You know, I, I think is you know, specifically for well, both you know, gene therapy and for antisense oligonucleotides. I think you will see an orthogonalization in, in things like gene therapy, where you split out you know the vector from the payload, and, and you, you can so sort of rigorously evaluate safety and efficacy of you know, delivery in the, in the the vector itself apart from the genetic payload, and then then have we can have mechanisms for evaluating that as well. Um, and I, I think a lot of this can be done computationally too. I think toxicities can be predicted in many cases in advance for things like ASOs. And so, um, I do see these costs falling dramatically over you know the next several years.
0: Yeah. Well, I was wondering if, if is it, um, cause they, cause they presumably will fall over the lifetime of, uh, patents 10, 20 year timeframe, but how about in the near future? I mean, we've had a couple of Uh, Issues in the UK, for example, with uh, the cystic fibrosis drug that took a very long time for the government and uh, the and the drug maker to agree on a price. Do you think the? Where do you? I mean, it's more complex than pointing the finger at one party, and and I don't think it's helpful to do that. But do you think the? um, You know, do you think the pharmaceutical industry? needs to focus on getting R&D costs down? Because I, I tend to hear most of the time the narrative is it's priced so high because the R&D is expensive and, and to build a viable business, we have to recoup that. So is that kind of why you think the, the real driver is getting that R&D cost down?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately, yes, that you know if you want to imagine that there's this perfectly competitive market for drug development, then it really is the cost of development that will drive the cost of the drugs ultimately. I don't know to what extent that's actually true, Right. Um, yeah. In terms of the the market for pharmaceuticals, but let's assume it is. Then, yeah, you really do need to focus on several things. Actually, you know, it's, it's the cost of drug development, it's the, it's the time scale, and it's the risk. So, you know, drug development is almost notoriously risky, and it takes a very, very long time. You know, it is actually, you know, to do, you know, in drug development, it can be difficult to just beat the cost of you know, taking the same amount of money, sticking it in government bonds, and waiting right. seventeen years. <laughs> it's like. But that's what you're up against um, you know, when it comes to, you know, uh, uh, making a profit. Like you actually have to be able to beat your next best alternative as an investor. And, and given the time scales and the risks involved, that can be really hard to do. Um, so I think, you know, the, the two things we can tweak there most readily from a policy perspective are risk and time scales. You know, and, and you know, getting drugs to market takes a very long time because clinical trials take a very, very long time. And I think there are ways that, you know, we could uh, shift what we optimize in the process away from certainty and more towards value uh, because you can't really optimize both at the same time. And in fact, if you optimize certainty, you will certainly not optimize value for patients. That, that, that's absolutely the case. Um, but that's the way regulatory bodies tend to behave.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. Can you, can you unpack that a little more? So when you say certainty, I, I suppose you're referring to the clinical trial either passes or fails. You set yes. this line in the sand and it, uh, everybody waits for the data to be unveiled and, and stock prices go up or down and patients' hopes are dashed. How would you re-architect that system in a better way? Would it be more continuous or or more, um, you know, wouldn't be a discrete success or failure?
1: Absolutely. And and certainly, you know, approval um, would also be a function of the severity of the disorder you're intending to treat. Um, So more severe diseases, would require less certainty um, in, in efficacy and in some cases even less certainty in safety. You know, I think for disorders that are, you know, uh, you know, extremely severe, then yeah, we might even be willing to compromise a bit on, on safety, you know, given the urgency of the situation. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, uh, in, in general, I would say I would, you know, focus less on, on efficacy too. Uh, Cause I think the market could probably ultimately figure out a way to figure out if, if the drug works or not. Right payers' we're certainly trying to figure that out uh, as, as they do right now. Um, and so I think that if you focus largely on safety and the known toxicities of a drug, um, you know you could you could chop off a lot of, of the the uncertainty around in a time scale the, around drug development.
0: Is there anywhere where they're where they're doing what you describe or thinking about? It? I mean one thing it reminds me of is the in the UK, at least for cancer, there's some discretionary funding that can be allocated to cancer drugs that are maybe not yet proven to be particularly cost effective or necessarily efficacious above the standard. Um, So they they haven't been cleared for everyone, but they can be kind of cleared in some cases. But did this come up in the precision medicine initiative discussions in the US, for example, or are there any other healthcare systems where where they're trying things like this, maybe faster clinical trials with more real world evaluation?
1: Well, you know, so, so there wasn't a lot of that within the Precision Medicine Initiative. It really was more focused on on enabling the science rather than changing the regulatory right. policy. Some of that was addressed in 21st Century Cures, but I don't think there's really been a substantive um, philosophical debate in the U.S. yet over how it is that we approve drugs. Um, you know, the, I think it's it's starting to happen, um, but uh, I. I don't no sense that we have the momentum for a sort of a full rethink of how we do it right now and whether or not we're really ready for the truly personalized era in medicine. Um, because you know, for me, we're, we're ending up in absurd situations with repurposing where we are waiting for drugs to get approved for condition A so that we can take it off label for condition B. Um, and that's right. a little bit weird. Like, we don't care if it's efficacious for condition A at all. Uh, all we care is that it's safe, because we know from the molecular data it's likely to work for condition B.
0: Right. So there's some some very clear uh, <laughs> strange situations that that are a result of some regulatory inefficiency and 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 no other reason besides that.
1: Yeah, it's increasingly likely going forward that you know when you're given a, a prescription that it will be based on molecular characteristics that say this happens to be the right drug for you. Um, and maybe nobody else with that condition. I mean, that, that, that could happen. And so the efficacy labeling is a little bit strange, uh, in, in that world. Um, I think what we need there is, you know, perhaps some trust in the processes themselves that end up making the predictions to say, you should take this or you should take that. Um, and, and then again, focus heavily on safety and toxicity. I I think, you know, um, Regulatory bodies are, 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 I think, pretty good at systematically characterizing the, you know, the safety and toxicity of of drugs, um, they can, and they can do that much faster than we can figure out efficacy.
0: Yeah, and and I, I saw a presentation a couple weeks ago where um, it was it was the head of the genomics initiative at AstraZeneca, Carolina, um, and she was basically saying in the last 10 years the reason that drugs fail has flipped it used to be three quarters of the three quarters of the drug failures were due to safety and now about three quarters are due to efficacy so things are generally safe now as they make it to uh, clinical trials or you know past phase two clinical trials but they're not uh, you know they're they're failing because they're not provably better than the alternatives which which is interesting and, and I think leads to your point
1: yeah. And what I worry is that, you know, in a future where, you know, we, we try to find a, a drug that happens to work for you as opposed to a drug that was proven to work for the, the condition that you have. Um, the drugs that didn't beat the, you know, the, the, effectiveness threshold and got lost for that probably had side effects that were beneficial in other disorders, uh, that will now never benefit from those drugs. So like, again, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm really very much against broad, large scale efficacy, uh, as, as a condition for bringing a compound to market. I'm not against it in terms of, you know, payers demanding efficacy for paying for it. I mean, that's appropriate. Um, but I also think, you know, we, we need to get to a different way of capturing the value of a drug. I mean, I, I, think, you know, having payers, um, pay only when the patient benefits, I think would, would change things considerably.
0: Yeah. Are you seeing, because there's a lot of discussion in the UK and the US and rest of the world about value-based care where we're, we're only paying when things work. And, and I've, hear, I've heard mixed reviews that a lot of people talk about it, but it's very hard to implement. Are you seeing any traction as far as that goes from your work? um uh, no
1: not yet because it's really hard to define value right. <laughs> so i say we should shift to value based care but then the question what is value pops up immediately um and it's 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 hard to capture and we, we see this in another form within precision medicine where we recommend an intervention uh patient goes on the intervention and then the question is well what does it mean to work um right. and in some cases it's all, it almost it just smacks you in the face and it's so yeah. obvious it's working Yeah. The patient has seizures and they stop. Okay. Well, it probably was because of the drug. Um, and there are ways to increase that confidence. Um, but, uh, you know, what if it's a, you know, a condition where you're expecting to impact development? Well, what if it takes years now to figure out whether or not it worked? Um, so it's, it's really hard, actually, to, to answer some of these questions about the value of a drug. Uh, so I, I, I agree philosophically that, yes, we should switch to value-based reimbursement. But in practice, it can actually be really challenging to define value.
0: How do you think we get there? For There's, I think, some fundamental challenges that you describe where if something is not measurable in any realistic time frame, then, then maybe it's not possible to do it. But for other things, do you think we need more digital methods of monitoring patients in the real world and how they're improving and establishing baselines? Or do you think it's capturable through electronic health records or some combination of two?
1: Probably a combination. I, I think I'm, I'm very much in favor of more surrogate endpoints, um, more biochemical endpoints to say, well, you know, you know, we we've restored the missing enzyme, therefore, you know, right. it's reasonable to believe that long-term this patient will benefit from it. Um, even if we don't see an, an immediate, overnight impact,
0: what do you see as the as the biggest challenges in rare disease research specifically today? You you've experienced firsthand the diagnostic odyssey. This in my PhD, I worked on a couple of di- primarily diagnostics focused rare disease research projects, and this is, I think, still a huge challenge. But um, it's just the first hurdle for most families. If you have achieve that diagnosis, you start to think about improving quality of life, potential treatments or cures, where do you see the the, the biggest challenges and opportunities today in, in rare disease research and, and where people should be focusing?
1: Yeah, so d- to be clear, d- diagnostics is still a challenge, uh, even yeah. with all the tools we have today. I mean, if you look at uh, undiagnosed diseases programs or the Undiagnosed Diseases Network, you're seeing diagnoses in about a third of the cases. Yeah. Even with you know the full power of genomics applied, uh, and so to me it says, well, there's there's a lot more to do. Um, if we only get, I mean, a, a third is great. It's a lot higher than we used. To. It's, it's a lot higher than like, one in still, ten. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's we we, we clearly have a, a long way to go, um, even there. Uh, and then of course, once you get a diagnosis, um, there is al- almost no infrastructure at all uh, today in terms of finding that best possible treatment uh, or any treatment actually. Uh, and that's largely what I'm building at UAB with this Institute is the infrastructure to map every patient with their high resolution molecular data over to the best possible treatment for them.
0: What kind of data do you use for that today? What is the, what are the main building blocks? In the case of rare genetic disorders,
1: um, yeah, the, the genome is the, is the entry point and it's starting off with the, you know, the, the gene in question and, Uh, the initial thing we do for almost every patient that reaches out to us is impact analysis. So not just is this gene or is this variant pathogenic or not? um, But what is the impact of this genotype on, on the function of the gene? And there's really four directions it can go. Um, It's either overactive, it's underactive, it's absent, or it's toxic. You know, so we, we branch in those directions and, uh, you know, depending on which direction go, we either, you know, activate it, we inhibit it, uh, we compensate for the absence of it, or we eliminate it. Um, and, and we have strategies behind each of those too. So we're, we're really rolling out this algorithm for constantly finding next steps in this therapeutic odyssey.
0: So who's involved for, if you walk through kind of a typical patient journey through something like this, are they, are they interfacing with a medical doctor or a data scientist or is it a team of multiple people? Cause it seems like a very interdisciplinary thing.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a very interdisciplinary team. Um, it's, it's believe it or not, a lot of the heavy lifting is done by undergraduates, uh, um, that, uh, are, are trained to serve as the, the intermediaries between you know, the patients, the scientists, the artificial intelligence tools. Um, and, uh, and in trying to coordinate everything wow. all together. Um, and, and ultimately if it succeeds, it results in a, a letter from us to the patient's physician, documenting research findings that may be applicable uh, to their particular patient. Uh, and then we leave it in their hands to, to make a decision as to whether or not they want to change care based on those. Wow.
0: Research findings. research And uh, so I yeah, guess it's very yeah, highly,
1: highly interdisciplinary. Um, it was under serving as a, a sort of glue
0: Right. And I guess it must be very dependent on the physician on the receiving end of that recommendation also being in, in, invested in the process, right? Because you hate to, um, to, to do all of that work and then have it lose steam at that point. So do you spend time um, you know, speaking with the patient's physician to, or the, you know, their clinical geneticist or, or other specialists to, um, you know, to, to try to make sure that it's well received? We do. In fact, we consider that
1: part of our research. So we're doing, you know, we're we're, we're analyzing um, the rate at which recommendations are adopted. And we're even doing essentially user experience studies on the format of the letters we send themselves. Um, So we're moving to a format now where we have the the really immediately relevant stuff uh, out in boxes at the front. So you can glance at the first page and say, oh, that's what this letter is about.
0: That's amazing. That's re- that's, I, I'm not aware of any program like that. I'm, uh, it's, it, it, there are elements, I think, that you've probably drawn inspiration from other places, but that whole package together is, is really fascinating.
1: Yeah, Well. We, we, but you're right that we, we do it because it, it really sucks if you spend a lot of time. And this, we yeah. could spend you know dozens of hours or even hundreds of hours on a single case in, in some cases. And we'd really like to make sure that the physician reads the letter and actually does something with it in right. that
0: case. How many patients are you able to, um, to get through this process in a typical year? So in the
1: past year, I think we've had engagements with about 300 patients. Wow. Uh, and that seems to a young program. It's only been around for about a year and a half, but I'm guessing that's going to be roughly typical. It does seem to be accelerating. Uh, we do seem to be able to handle uh, that, that level. Um, a lot of the work happens at, at the initial engagement because it goes to impact analysis. Um, and the formation of an initial plan. And then it will oftentimes wait for a while because some of these next steps can take a long time. Uh, right. So you have a lot of cases moving in parallel, waiting for an
0: update. So you have a, you have a team of undergraduates. That, what an what a amazing undergraduate experience as well to be coordinating something like that.
1: It, you know, it is actually. And, and um, oddly enough, all the undergraduates that have been through this program, I think five are now alumni of the program. All five have gone to grad school. Um, med school or to get their PhD. Um, So I I feel like there might be something to it actually. I think it might be a way of really energizing undergraduates in a way that makes them want to go on to pursue uh, medicine or science for their career.
0: Yeah, well, I I think, um, you know, maybe part of it is that actually putting people at the interface with the patients and not you know, at a cell culture, helping cells grow or dealing with mice where you're very far removed from who the research is designed to help, to help obviously know, um, you know, every, we have to have that kind of research. I sat behind a computer for my whole PhD and didn't really interact with patients, but having that patient facing experience, even if you go on to just do lab work for your PhD, for example, yeah. um, it gives you that context, I think.
1: Well, in fact, this just happened. You know, I, I you know, one of my students, uh, she's a PhD student. You know, she's like, You know what, I realize I need to go into the lab now. So she's going into right. a, 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 a sort of a a bioinformatics lab that's also very has a does a lot of bench science. Uh she's like, I here's a, I know a specific problem I have to solve uh in order to help patients. Right. And so she's going and spending hours at the bench now. That's great.
0: So if you look forward five years, how, so when did you, when did you um, come into the job at UAB? Was it about a year and a half or two years ago? Uh, two and a half
1: years ago. And then this, this program for patients started around a year and a half ago.
0: Right. And, and how far are you through the um, you know, institute building process? Have you hired all of your faculty members or are you still in the process of, of building that team? Oh, we are definitely still hiring faculty.
1: Um, right. yeah, so we, we built, we've hired a number. Uh, I think we probably hired five, maybe six faculty in the past two and a half years. And we'll probably hire, um, as many in the next two and a half years. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a broad vision of the kinds of science we need to work as a Team to produce these solutions for patients and uh, yeah, we're, we're definitely doing targeted hires in those areas
0: what is that vision if you look forward 10 15 years whatever the horizon that you have is what what, what do you what you all want to try to build or, or see in the world
1: so the, the vision is to have a, a scalable resource for you know, patients and physicians where they can reach out when they hit that challenging case that fails standard of care and needs that truly personalized care so that um, we can, within a reasonable amount of time for a reasonable number of patients, return that report to say, here's your option. Um, you know, I, I'd love it if, you know, um, you know, for maybe 80% of the time within two or three months, we, re- we return a report that says, this is what you do.
0: Right. That's amazing. No, I think, and and it's sorely needed, especially the use the word scalable. But the idea that you can build, start small, and figure things out, but build it in such a way that when something works, you can really bring it to thousands or eventually millions of people is um, is super important.
1: Yeah, and that's why the operating philosophy of the institute is: anytime we do something manually more than three or four times, it has to get automated. Right. Uh, Right. (laughs) That that's just drawing on my background in computer science. Like I just don't like to do stuff that can be automated, um, and so I think that's where the scale is coming from over time. You know, and and we we always automate the the, the most recent bottleneck.
0: Right now, that's I a, a I think a lesson that cuts across all industries, isn't it? If you're starting to do things too many times, you need to think about how to uh, how to streamline and automate it. Yep. So and I know we're running out of time here, and and thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I I was just wondering if maybe as a final question, if you put yourself back in your own shoes, and um, I, I suppose it was probably eight or nine years ago at this point when you got your son's diagnosis and you formed the nonprofit for parents that are maybe in that position right now where they've recently had a diagnosis or they have a child that's experiencing, um, some kind of unexplained symptoms. Do you have any recommendation of what you would have told yourself or what you'd tell someone now on how to, to best set themselves up for success in terms of early diagnosis, getting into research? Um, yes. Okay, good.
1: Definitely have some advice for my old self. Um, so I think that one piece of advice I'd give is be careful about over-investing in the basic science. Um, if your goal is to find a treatment, um, you can spend forever working on the basic science and get nowhere. Um, you really want to focus on the translational science uh, around a disorder. And the first insight I have to share there is that you do not have to understand a disorder in order to treat a disorder. Uh, and this, this is, runs contrary to what every parent thinks, I think, and initially is like, how, do you, how can you treat a disorder without understanding it? Um, and what, what, I, what I've come to realize is that what you really need to do is get as fast as possible to what I would call a screenable model of the disease. And that could be a cellular model. It could come from the, the, the patient themselves. It could be a model that you build in some way with transfection. Um, it could be a fly. It can be a worm. It could be a zebrafish. Um, but you need to find a, a, a model of the disease in some system that is amenable to drug screening. Um, and once you have a model uh, that has a, a phenotype that you can recognize in some way, you want to test every approved drug in the world against it. That's basically it.
0: Right. That's, uh, I think that's super useful advice. So you can think about all of the pieces you need to get in place to get there. But if that is the core piece, then you can think about raising research funding or finding an academic that will help you do it or finding a contract research organization or partnering with a company. There's a ton of ways to actually achieve that. But, but the key is actually to get to that screenable organism.
1: Yeah. And there are examples now uh, that I can cite, you know, so e- Ethan Perlstein's work um, in the glycosylation disorders community where he was building animal models like flies and worms and yeast right. and just doing drug screens to see what comes up. Where, you know, for a tiny fraction of the amount uh, invested in the basic science of these disorders, he actually went all the way to treatment recommendations in in a much shorter amount of time. And we're talking about, you know, the the, the timescale of a year versus decades, Um, you know, and, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars versus millions of dollars spent uh, in, in doing that work. Um, and a lot of the parents that you know, begin the journey that we did, and I was the same. I, I, you know, I invested in the basic science, and we learned a lot that way. We really did. Um, and I'm not sure that um, much of it has been essential in actually finding treatments for the disease. Some of it has certainly helped, but most of it has actually come from finding that model and interrogating the model.
0: And I suppose sometimes it might it might work the opposite direction, where if you fi- if you find something in a translational um you yeah, in, in a, translational research program, then it often can tell you something about the basic biology. If you find a drug that works and you figure out what that drug's doing, then it probably will tell you something about the biology, right? So you can, you can potentially achieve some of that early understanding anyways. Oh, that's, that's absolutely
1: true. And it's, it's, it's certainly happened with my son's disorder NGLI one, where we found stuff, so, saw that it, it was working uh, and then went back to figure out all the, the, you know, the, the particulars of why.
0: Right. I, I remember reading in your blog posts, you tried a couple different things. You've tried ketogenic diet. You've tried a few different antiepileptics. Is that right? Uh, right. What, what, well, that, what? That,
1: was, that was all pre-diagnosis too. Right. I mean, right. Is, uh, so we found some stuff that helped pre-diagnosis. Uh, and some of it we have a better understanding <clears throat> of why that stuff may have helped. Uh, and since then we found a number of things uh, that also chip start to chip away at the phenotype.
0: Right. Help you really understand, uh, What's going on? I mean, it's it's such a complex system, right? We can't um, we like you said, we can't hope to understand exactly what's going on. It's it's uh, sometimes we have to just learn by experimenting.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I would say that you know, when it comes to drug development, you know, uh, finding finding a model and then doing trial and error, just trying lots of different stuff on the model, is remarkably effective.
0: Right. No, that's great. Well, I appreciate you giving that advice. It's. Uh, I think it's. It's always good to have someone who's been through um, this inc- this incredible career trajectory to to just say, if I could take a deep breath and go back and do it again, um, here's what I'd change. Yeah. So,
1: oh, the second piece of advice would be get a board of advisors or scientific advisors that don't have a conflict of interest. <laughs> that's also <right>. pretty important. <laughs>
0: Did uh, is that is that speaking from personal experience, or have you seen other? other- uh, that's 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 from the experience of others. Right. Um, you know,
1: when you start a foundation, the scientific advisory board that reviews the grants should not be able to receive the grants.
0: Yes. <laughs> Put it simply. <laughs> good. Very good advice. Are there any? Um, are there any organizations that help that you recommend that help patients? get started forming patient organizations here in the UK and Cambridge is find a cure, which is a very good one. Right. Um, but are there um, others in the U S or elsewhere in the world? That, yeah.
1: You know, so like uh, global genes here in the U S right. uh, that seems helpful in this regard. Uh, I think Nord may help with some of this too. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think Nord and global genes are certainly two of the big ones.
0: Great. Well, I just want to say, thank you, Matt. Really appreciate you taking the time. Um, you're on a lot of our lists of uh, great, Um, advocates for rare disease and examples of people that just don't take no for an answer and uh, and when there's a problem they they push right through it rather than throwing their hands up so uh, thanks for taking the time to to do the podcast i think um, people will really appreciate it well thank you it's been
1: a pleasure